The views and opinions expressed on coffee and compatibility are those of the podcast host and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Ashi. guys welcome to 2024 thank you for listening to coffee and compatibility i am eric weimer and with me as usual is the lovely dr kelly hitchman and mr jeremy sherrill how are you both doing good sir feeling fine couldn't be better i'm sorry jeremy you didn't get a like an adjective descriptor i'll have to work on that for for subsequent episodes you're looking very lovely today too (laughs) Oh, and look, and mysterious also. So we just, our first episode of 2024, New Year's resolutions. If you're a a longtime listener, you'll know that Dr. Hitchman is not a believer. I don't really do them myself. So we, being Kelly and myself, decided we're going to throw Jeremy under the bus. And Jeremy, what is your New Year's resolution? You know, I'm typically not a New Year's resolution person either, but but mm. but this year I'll I'll get into it for the sake of the podcast. For the podcast, I will uh, commit to. I need to try more new things. You know, that's what I need to do this year. I need to I need to go. I don't I don't even know. I need to go skydiving or ride a mechanical bull or or go cow tipping or something. I I need to do something new uh, in 2024. So Eric and Kelly, you can hold me. You can hold me to that. Ask me next episode if I went cow tipping. Yeah, admittedly, like before we went live, we were trying to give Jeremy some advice about this. And I think definitely one of your New Year's resolutions should be to completely ignore any of the advice that we give to you. (laughs) All of those those sound like terrible ideas. They're terrible ideas. Let me just tell you, I'm never going to go skydiving. That's that's not going to happen. That's a big old no. Let's take let's take that one off the table. I have trust issues. That, you know, it's okay. It's okay. We, it's okay. We, we, the, the people of the coffee and compatibility do not have to like New Year's resolutions. But I can say that as a podcast, the podcast has some great New Year's resolutions. Um, we are moving um, to one episode a month. We are going to dedicate our monthly episode to a wonderful deep topic. Um, and we're adding a new segment this year um, to focus on uh, technologists excellence and outstandingness. I don't even know if that's a word, but we're going to focus on it. Um, so so we need your help, Ashi community. We want you to email us about the outstanding, excellent technologists in your lab, not just people that are doing a great job at their jobs, not just people that are helping out with validations, people that are really doing things um, to play a role in the Ashi community and to further our field. There are lots of them out there. We know it. Let us know about the outstanding technologists in your lab and bonus if they're not a manager or a supervisor. We want to highlight these very special members of our community by lauding their accomplishments on the podcast in a special segment. So we hope to hear from you about these wonderful people in 2024. Yeah, we wanna hear um, about, oh, you need to collect CE. We do CE. So did you know, if you didn't already, throughout last year, you could collect continuing education credits by listening to the podcast. Um, And to uh, the CE uh, 
like form that you fill out to get your continuing education credits, we added a question uh, to get ideas from our audience on topics they want to hear. And we've gotten lots of ideas and you will definitely hear some of those ideas focused upon in upcoming episodes in 2024. So keep it rolling. We love hearing from our listeners. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just going to be artificial intelligence 24-7, 365. With a little bit of cow tipping mixed in there. Of course. Of course. Probably more AI than cow tipping, but you know, (laughs) it'll be fine. How about about this? I will commit to going skydiving if if you both do it with me and we'll jump out of the plane with like locked arms. You know, have you seen that? And Eric can go pro it. You know, we'll be right back with Dr. Robert Lusky <laughs> to dive into the realm of antibody analysis as we explore the cutting edge tools and technologies that researchers and scientists employ in their quest for understanding immune responses. We'll be right back, guys. Yeah, I'm not skydiving. That's not happening. Apply by January 25th for the 18th International Summer School on Immunogenetics. Hosted by Ashi and supported by Effie, Apfia, and Arshi, the meeting provides a focused course on all aspects of theoretical and applied immunogenetics and histocompatibility. It's all happening on April 14th through 17th in Merida, Mexico. Be inspired, bring back knowledge to your lab, and see what other labs are doing around the globe. Visit www.ashi-hla.org forward slash ISS. Welcome listeners to our first episode of 2024. Today, we couldn't think of a better way to open a new year than with Dr. Robert Lusky. Uh, Dr. Lusky is the head of the Division of Hematological Pathology. He's the medical director of the HLA Laboratory and Professor of Pathology at the Queen Elizabeth Health Sciences Center at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada. He's also the medical and scientific director of the HLA Laboratory at the Canadian Blood Services head office in Ottawa. Dr. Lusky has been an active member of the Histocompatibility community. He is our past president. Uh, He contributes regularly to human immunology, the ASHI quarterly. He teaches topics. If he hasn't been to your laboratory to demo some of the new things that he's working on, I'm sure he'll be there soon. Reach out to him. He does great demo. Um, Gosh, the the list goes on and on. Um, He's been at many um, national and international workshops and symposia lately, um, traveling, uh, traveling like crazy. Uh, So thank you so much, Dr. Lusky, for being here with us today. As we ask all of our guests, may we call you Rob? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kelly, for the kind introduction and for having me and also to uh, uh, Jeremy and Eric as well. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Your schedule has been intense lately. You've been to so many different countries. You've probably traveled more in the last month than I have in my entire life. Um, so I, I hope that we get time to uh, at least summarize some of your recent adventures. Um, but first, I would like to um, open with a question that kind of pertains to this last annual meeting that we had. Um, a big focus this past year, and even a little bit the year before, um, was antibody analysis. And and you and your laboratory have really been innovating ways for us to be better about not calling spurious reactivity. (laughs) What, What do you think is the biggest barrier to 
accurate reporting of anti-HLA antibody detection? Well, the, the biggest barrier I would say is, you know, blindly relying on some kind of an artificial uh, cutoff. Uh, because we know that uh, the spurious reactivities do happen. There's more and more evidence uh, uh, for it. And they can really occur in all kinds of patients, uh, patients who have never seen a sensitization event, patients who have been sensitized, they can be, these spurious reactivities can occur as part of a mixture where there's real antibodies targeting real HLA antigens and then these spurious reactivities, obviously. So they can really blend in and they can be of any strength, just like any other antibody. The, the antibodies can be of high titer. So, you know, uh, relying on MFI is, is not a good thing. You really have to uh, consider um, the reactivity pattern, patient sensitization, uh, history, um, you know, the correlation with other assays, including uh, phenotype beads where the antigen is a little bit more uh, real, where there's not as much uh, chance of denaturing uh, epitopes, correlation with cell-based assays. Uh, so these are all extremely important um, parameters that you have to use to correlate. So again, the biggest barrier, I think, is relying simply on some kind of a artificial cutoff for reporting these antibodies, because you can overcall uh, things, uh, uh, even antibodies that are obviously uh, uh, targeting spurious reactivities uh, can easily be above whatever cutoff you choose. Uh, but you can also undercall where uh, you could have real reactivities, antibodies that are genuine targeting a real HLA epitopes, but part of a more remote sensitization history. And you know the antibody titer can be at low level where you can completely miss it. Or the pattern can be maybe visible, but but again, if you're not paying attention, you could miss it. So, yeah. So, Rob, you make a very interesting point about uh, MFIs and and sort of the um, the the game we play with the the MFI cutoffs. It's it's not uncommon when having a conversation with a clinician uh, for them to to be concerned for their patient and and uh, want to know the specifics of the antibody. Uh, results that uh, that are being reported, and they want to know MFI cutoffs, or I'm sorry, they want to know MFI values. Okay, so you're you're telling me there's uh, you know potentially some some antibody uh, coming up. What's the MFI? What do you what do you say to those clinicians who are really curious about the the MFI values and who perhaps put too much emphasis uh, on on what those MFI values are? How do you have those conversations? Oh, these are these are excellent points, uh, uh, Jeremy. So, you know, the, the way uh, I approach it is the first question: Is the antibody real or not? Uh, so, so I think that is the main question: Is it targeting a, a true uh, HLA epitope? Is it part of a real sensitization to HLA antigens uh, in the past? And if the answer is this is a true antibody, then MFI can be helpful. Uh, and you have to put it in the context of, you know, the, the patient, really. It, it's personalized medicine. So what sort of transplant is this going to be? Uh, you know, which program, uh, <laughs> you know, is the program able to desensitize uh, the patient uh, or not? Is the patient able to take higher levels of immunosuppression? Um, is this the only option for the patient? So if there is a uh, low-level antibody, but the patient has an overall 
low uh, PRA, where you could easily find a perfectly matched donor where there's not going to be uh, the necessity to cross uh, HLA antibodies, then why not wait? Uh, whereas, you know, if you have a very highly sensitized patient that is going to be waiting for the organ for infinity, pretty much, if you do not cross anything, then crossing lower level antibody is something that we really have to do so that this patient actually receives a transplant. Um, so these would be some of the conversations that we would have. Uh, locus is probably important because, again, we know that the um, uh, all HLA antigens on the single engine beads are uh, represented at a similar level, regardless of the locus. But we know that this is not exactly, you know, the case um, in on the on, on the organ. So some of the HLA antigens are going to be expressed at a lower level, and the same MFI potentially could be could be crossed. You know, and and the biggest thing is again to uh, let the physicians know about the antibodies that they are there. We can once we know they are real we can talk about the MFI, so something that is actually even under the threshold or above the threshold, so that when they are starting to take chances and risks in patients where there's really no other options, they we can learn from it. All of us can learn from it. We can see feedback. So, you know, if we say, yeah, there's a very low level antibody, uh, but it's real, we've confirmed with cell-based assays that this is not just an antibody targeting the nature epitope, and then they do take appropriate precautions and treat the patient with some kind of an induction, you know, immunosuppression, um, and then the patient does well, well, then we are learning from it. You know, where I, the worst thing would be to say, well, we are going to ignore that because it's under our threshold, uh, and yet it's a real antibody, and then the patient goes and has a rejection, or the other way around, for us to say, yeah, you have an antibody about 5,000 MFI, antibody is actually not real, and then the patient goes through a desensitizing treatment to receive a graft and everybody is happy that they cross an antibody where in fact there was nothing to cross and the patient was treated inappropriately. So really, you know, the first step for us is to determine what is a real antibody. Once we identify that, then we can start looking at the antibody levels and, you know, MFI obviously is not the only way to assess it. There's antibody titration is very important as well. You know, probably the breadth of the epitopes, how many epitopes the antibody may be targeting. There are some epitopes that are going to be more, more immunogenic. So again, the, the first thing is to identify what the real is so that we, so that's not ambiguous because right now I feel like we don't have a good handle on it. Often antibodies that are not real are get, getting reported as real mm -hmm. antibodies and antibodies that are real, that are under the threshold are not getting reported. And that's probably a very high percentage of cases. So if we can straighten that out, and establish what is real, and then apply different thresholds to different patient groups, different organ groups, you know, different types of treatments. I think that's that's when we're going to really learn what the impact of antibody can be. I hope, Ashi community, you're listening to this episode because what was just discussed happens on a daily basis. Um, so very important. And Rob, since since we address that point, something that drives me batty is when you do know that an antibody is legitimate and you're having a talk about change, because that's a question that I get a lot. How much has it changed? We detected this donor-specific antibody post-transplant. We've done a follow-up test to look at kind of the trajectory. 
We want to know, do we want to treat? Do we want to do this? How much has the antibody changed? Do you feel like the controls need to be a part of that discussion? Because you can have, I mean, we know this assay is highly variable, even when all factors that can be controlled for are controlled for. So, I mean, you know, if your PC is up 2,000 and your antibodies up 2,000, is that really change? But I don't, I don't hear people addressing this, and it drives me nuts. I, I totally agree, Kelly, and, and and we know that single-engine assay or any other assay that we use in HLA laboratory uh, is uh, is quantitative. So so uh, we really have to remember that, um, and that there's a a, a plateau uh, that, that occurs, you know, probably above 20,000 MFI or so. And beyond that, you could have 1,000 times higher antibody level and still going to appear the same. Um, and so, you know, looking at MFI, like you said, comparing, say, before and after treatment and, and just looking at MFI when the antibody was over 20,000 to begin with, it makes no sense. We have to do something else. Um, and like you said, the, the test variability. So if you take the same sample and ask, you know, 10 different technologists to run it or run it across you know a few different uh lots of kits or run it through different vendors you're going to get some variability obviously in, in antibody uh, uh, levels and so the way we approach it is we we look at the titer um and we always on each run we would run the original serum that we are trying to make a comparison to so you know the serum that is is pre-treatment when we first discovered that there was say donor specific antibody or or say later on, maybe the donor-specific antibody got even higher. So whatever your uh, final point before treatment is, that's what we use as a comparator. And we titrate that serum first to see what the actual DSA titer is. And then when the patient gets treated and we collect post-treatment sera, you know, post-plasma whatever, IVIG, we always run that original serum on every single run. And that that is how we compare the title. So we would then say, well, say in the original serum, the title was one in 64 of your donor-specific antibody, where you know by one in 64 it went below some kind of a cutoff of 1,000, some kind of a threshold that you that you use in your laboratory. Um, then that's your starting point. Say you do it next time, along with a serum that was already post-treatment. And that serum that was one in 64 now could be one in 32 because of variability in testing. Uh, well, then you take that one in 32. And if your post-treatment serum has a titer of one in four, well, that is an eight-fold difference from the original. And so that, that is how we would, uh, you know, look at the antibody levels and report this to the physicians. And there's you know, a very nice study uh, that was published by... Olga Timofieva and, and her team, and they are kind of looking at that approach as well. Now, you know, you touched on a lot of really good points about how to, to utilize the same sample across multiple runs to sort of, I want to say, sort of normalize, you know, variation as much as as much as you can uh, for understanding what's a what's a real. And you you and some of the co-hosts have all mentioned real. And so, you know, I think we as a community, what does that mean to you? What, is, what does real mean to you? How do you define it? Right. 
Well, again, I, I guess all I mean is an antibody that is targeting a native HLA epitope, so something that is uh, occurring in nature um, and, and not either a, an epitope that you can see on the beads, on the single engine beads, because of the molecule being slightly different and the nature, or maybe something is exposed or there's some extra uh, material connected to the HLA uh, protein, or even some other proteins that co-purify during the production process with HLA and get deposited on the bead. So we now know that people do have antibodies that uh, by, you know, we don't know what they are actually targeting in nature. There could be some kind of a viral protein or or something else that happens to cross-react with uh, epitopes on HLA that are actually in a denatured uh, form. Um, and also we know that some individuals have antibodies against other molecules that may be on these beads, um, su such as polyhistidine uh, tags, for example, that are used to purify some of these HLA antigens. And then they will react, obviously these antibodies will react with the bead as if this was a, a real HLA antigen, but in fact, the specificity is not an HLA antigen, it is, it is the polyhistidine tag or some kind of a combination of the polyhistidine tag and the HLA uh, antigens. And there were others. Uh, for example, there, there used to be a reactivity against uh, DR416, you know, one I can't remember anymore because it's it's been gone for, for quite some time. And I think that had to do with some fetal calf serum, uh, potentially, you know, contaminate, uh, contaminants uh, that were deposited on the on the beads. And one of the ways to uh, resolve that was to pre-treat uh, patient's sera with fetal calf serum to absorb these antibodies, so to speak, such that they wouldn't react with those targets on the beat. So, so these are the spurious reactivity, uh, you know, and, and we really need to distinguish them from the antibodies that are actually targeting uh, HLA epitopes that are seen on the beads, but also in nature. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think you did a very good job of explaining what what real means. And I'm, I'm going to second your definition for what that's worth. Um, but I want to get to what do you what kind of tools do you in your lab use on sort of a, a daily basis to to help you answer that big question of what whether it's a real uh, antibody or not? Because I think many of us are using very different tools to do that. And, you know, you've done such a wonderful job of trying to bring the community together to like an even playing field, if you will. Uh, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts on what what you guys are using routinely. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great uh, question. Thank you so much. Uh, so, you know, the first thing, again, we start from is the is the patient and the, the history, you know, is this a, a young unsensitized male and all of a sudden you see antibodies on the single engine bead assay. I mean, that should really raise uh, red flags and start studying, you know, what, what, what these antibodies are, what the specificity seems to be. Um, you know, and, and that is um, uh, one thing I will mention because some laboratories screen CIRA using, say, Flow PRA or some other assay that are, you know, and that makes sense because they have a lot of patients, they, they test a lot, and so they use a cheaper assay. We, in our uh, center, we use Syngenjin Beta assay in all our patients, even if they are negative. And I think that is important because if you don't, do that, you do not know what 
sort of reactivities you could get on the single engine beads with Sera from unsensitized patients. So, you know, running every single patient using single engine beads allows you to understand what a negative is. A negative is not always negative. There are some reactivities that we see. So I think that's the first thing is correlation with patient history and then looking at all the patterns and looking at the entire population. And again, you know, I know labs that are uh, performing, you know, lung or uh, testing for lung transplant patients, for example, or liver transplant patients. They'll see that those sera react differently than kidney patients. And I don't really know why that is, but they seem to have a lot more background, a lot more, you know, junky uh, reactivity. So that that's one thing is, you know, study your your patient population, understand what is normal, actually, you know. Um, the other thing is those other uh, assays, flow PRA, uh, you know, the, the um, um, or the, the PRA assay, the screening assay, they are useful because they don't have recombinant antigens on them, as you know. They, they have native antigens from cell lines. And so uh, they are a little bit less uh, predisposed to HLA antigen denaturation. So a correlation with, with this is useful, uh, where if your single antigen beta assay is positive and the other assays are, are negative, then again, you should potentially question the single antigen bead uh, result. Having said that, there is a sensitivity difference between those as well. So, you know, weaker antibodies that you may see on the single antigen assay, which is a more sensitive test, that are actually targeting genuine epitopes may be missed by screening assay or the phenotype assay. So we have to be careful with that. But if you clearly have a very strong antibody on single-agent assay and the, the screening assay or the phenotype assay is completely negative, then definitely that should raise uh, red flag. So having different platforms available in your lab and questioning some of this and studying correlation, I think is, is another thing that that, that is, should be done. Um, you know, and some labs do a good job where they are running two different vendors of single-agent assays that can be useful as well, uh, because certainly, you know, often confirming the reactivity by both assays can help. And if one is positive, one, one is negative, again, you could question things. But, but again, we have to use it with a grain of salt because there are sensitivity differences between the two assays. Both of them also exhibit, uh, you know, there's there's uh, denatured antigens are present on both of them. So just because both are showing the same thing does not necessarily mean that the antibody is targeting a, a genuine epitope, but, but certainly it's useful to correlate that. I think the biggest, you know, uh, thing that we use is correlation with cell-based assays. So, you know, we used to use a lot and we still do a lot of surrogate flow cytometry uh, cross-match confirming some of these reactivities with donors uh, that cells that express the uh, antigens of interest. That can be very helpful, but, you know, how many hours do we have to, for this? Because <laughs> talking about issues with flow cytometry cross-match obviously could be another uh, whole uh, show, I, you know, and I don't need to explain it to, to, this, to this panel, but, you know, some labs exhibit between 10 and 20% false positive rate where there's absolutely no uh, HLA antibodies targeting donor uh, antigens, and yet they get a positive uh, cross-match. On the other hand, the assay may not be sensitive enough to, de to detect uh, antibodies, say, below 5,000 uh, MFI, especially certain low signs. So if you were doing, if you were using an assay like this, which is not specific and not sensitive to try to sort these out, 
you can see how uh, you're going to get into trouble. And so, you know, in, in my lab, we've worked very hard to really optimize uh, flow cytometry crossmatch, and our false positive rate is only about 1%. Um, and so, you know, with that, and, and it's quite sensitive as well, we've, we've worked with our Brazilian colleagues who do, you know, thousands of crossmatches uh, annually, and they put a lot of lower DSA uh, patients on those crossmatches. So we have a very good understanding of the sensitivity of the assay. And with that information, then we can, you know, use that assay to sort out some of these um, say say discrepancies or some of these questions asking whether the antibody is targeting denatured epitopes or native uh, epitopes. But what we find the most helpful uh, actually is the adsorption solution. And you, you may have heard about the protocol that we uh, developed in my lab uh, using the adsorption solution approach. Again, we were not the first to, to do that. Uh, adsorption solution has been used in blood banking, for example, for more than a hundred years now. And it's a routine test used on a daily basis to sort out antibodies and confirm uh, specificity. Uh, you know, and in HLA, it's been used also for decades to characterize uh, epitopes, uh, cross-reactive groups. You know, uh, Dr. Paul Terasaki Foundation uh, has published a number of papers actually using the cell lines that have the single um, HLA antigens that are then used for uh, uh, single engine bead production to characterize epitopes into what we call TEREPs, Terasaki epitopes. And they used exactly the adsorption uh, elution approach. And they also uh, described several uh, epitopes, denatured epitopes tar targeted by, by antibodies in healthy unsensitized um, or antibodies that are in healthy uh, unsensitized males that are targeting denatured epitopes. And these are not absorbable or eludable. And so, you know, reading that paper, and and using my blood bank uh, kind of experience, we decided to actually see whether we could use adsorption solution approach for clinical testing in HLA. So what we do is if we have a serum of interest that has a antibody pattern and we are questioning whether this antibody pattern actually is, is real, meaning that the antibodies are targeting native epitopes, we simply choose a donor that expresses one or, or more of the HLA antigens in that pattern we absorb the serum and antibodies in that serum to the cell. And if those antibodies are binding genuine native HLA epitopes, they will bind the cell. Then you have to do pretty thorough washing to ensure that any unbound antibody, any irrelevant antibody that's not actually targeting HLA epitopes is washed away. And you do it by centrifugation, of course. Um, and then following that, we expose the cell pellet to a mild acid solution that's going to weaken the antibody antigen reactivity and is going to lift the antibody uh, off. And then we quickly centrifuge the cells back into a cell pellet, collect the supernatant, neutralize the pH, and then you run it on single agent beta assay. And so if the antibody was targeting a genuine HLA epitope, then that antibody is going to show up back on your single engine assay. Whereas if it was targeting a, either a denatured epitope you know, that's not found in nature, or, or in fact, it was binding some other molecule like polyhistidine tag or, or something else that was co-expressed on the beads, that is not going to uh, absorb onto the cells and is not going to be uh, eluted. And so that's been uh, really a, an eye-opener, um, you know, when we use this test. We were able to characterize a lot of um, antibodies that are binding denatured epitopes uh, and also confirm a lot of antibodies that are binding 
native epitopes, and that gives us real confidence in in saying, you know, what what is a real antibody, like you were asking, mm -hmm. and and what is and what is not. You know, the important controls are, of course, uh, when you're performing this adsorption elution and you have an antibody that you're questioning whether it's actually targeting a real epitope, you really have to run a positive control with it to ensure that your adsorption elution actually worked and that the cells of interest actually express the antigen that that you were wondering about uh because obviously that could be an issue um yeah and, rob you know, so, i'm so, so sorry to interrupt we are beyond um our time and what you're saying is so valuable i don't want uh, the audience to lose that so I do want them uh, to reference your publication. Um, the the ACTS protocol is is so uh, new, so important. Um, it builds beautifully off of um, these absorption elution capabilities that laboratories could be applying today, and in some cases might be easier to obtain than a surrogate cross match. Um, so thank you so much um, for being with us today. I want to close by asking you just a real brief question. I want your honest pulse. So I'm going to try to make it a, a yes, no question so that so that you don't have time to think about it too hard. Given all the hard work that you and Dr. Jackson and others have initiated in the last couple years regarding best practices in antibody analytics, do you think it's time for us to have guidelines and standards on antibody analytics. I do. I do. Yay! I mean, <laughs> we already we already do have them in Canada. You know, we, we did a similar exercise a few years back because we were wondering how much variability there is in reporting antibodies and analyzing antibodies. And we found that there was a huge variability. And based on that, we developed some guidelines for labs to use you know, to to how how to interpret, how to analyze, how to interpret, and how to list uh, antibodies, and that worked quite well because when we performed a, a similar exercise a couple of years back with all the Canadian labs, we actually had a very good consensus mm. in how the antibodies were analyzed and reported off of the same data. So, and see, so, folks, it can be done. It, it can, can be, be done, done across many labs, and you heard it here. It's coming. It's coming. So get ready. All those people that are using hard cutoffs, you got to let go of the I do it this way because I've always done it this way. Uh, Dr. Lusky, thank you so much for being with us today. It's great to see you again on the podcast. Cheers to a wonderful 2024. Thank, thank you, you so much. much sir. Thank you to all of you. Excellent questions. Uh, hopefully this was useful. And yeah, happy new year to everyone. Welcome back, guys. It is time for the tea, a segment dedicated to answering questions from our listeners. And this question comes to us from an anonymous listener because y'all don't want to be named. And that's, that's okay. That's okay. The question is, can laboratories extend the manufacturer's noted expiration date for a reagent by performing QC again? or by running a positive control for every run in which the reagent is used. The standards don't seem to give us this option. However, many labs have used this practice 
in the past. Hmm. What do you think, Jeremy? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question. Un unfortunately, if the if the manufacturer's expiration date is is given, if the manufacturer gives an expiration date, then then we don't have the option of continuing to use that, even if we uh, QC again or or run positive controls or things like that. We we could still use it for for training purposes, uh, but but not for actual clinical purposes. Now, if it's a reagent that you make up yourself, then that would be a little bit different. Yeah, also, I, I have to agree with with your assessment too. I think maybe rather than referring to them as anonymous listeners, maybe we go with they have a secret identity. That might be that the might be a way to go. The mysterious now. listener, yeah. my mysterious unnamed listener. Yeah, I I agree with you, um, Jeremy. I I think there are certain like emergent situations where you know, maybe you need to do this. Maybe a reagent isn't going to be produced anymore. Maybe it's on like heavy, heavy back order. But even if you had, if you got backed into a corner and you had to do that, you would still have to write an explanation for that, a corrected report. Uh, Dr. Weimer, Mar Dr. Weimer mentioned offline, uh, like a variance and, and you could still get cited for that. Like it's kind of like, you know, willingly admitting yeah we had to do this for this reason that we perceived, but it's still not up to standard. So yeah. if you can at all help it, I just wouldn't do it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for the question, but this one seems to be uh, a unanimous. Uh, nope. Got to stay in line with the manufacturers, whether we like it or not. Yeah. And, you know, maybe this falls very well in line with a, a large theme from today's podcast, Maybe you see that being done by labs in the past because the standards, you know, have evolved and become more appropriately stringent in this area. Um, we should continue evol to evolve and not, you know, rely on doing things just because we did them in the past. So guys, if you need career advice or advice on how to deal with something happening in your lab, visit our podcast page at ashi-hla.org backslash page backslash ashi podcast. Or you can email us at info at ashi-hla.org. Make sure to write the T, T-E-A, in the subject line. Did anyone else think that Rob could have gone on forever talking about his plethora of novel interventions of antibody analysis and techniques? And I'm like, I could listen to him talk forever. Yeah, I was going to say yes. And we probably all would have enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah I'm like, why did the episode been, have to stop? Yeah, it could have easily been an hour. Innovation. Oh, my God. But it's so uh, good. Like, there are no excuses. There are no excuses. Yeah, I mean... He's done such a wonderful job of laying out where we need to, what we should be doing. There's, there's clearly some disconnect uh, between, you know, all of the things that Rob just, just 
sort of laid before our feet in in implementation. Um, and so to me, that's the the next hurdle we need to to get across is, um, you know, we know how to do it now, right? Rob's done a tremendous job putting that pretty plain and simple. Um, now it's about getting everyone to jump on that train so that we're all speaking and doing the same thing. Looking at you, QAS. Yeah. And well, and I think the key here is because everybody loves doing things their own way. So get that. That there are, I think he if he stressed anything, there are multiple ways to attack the problem of ruling out spurious reactivity. You don't you don't have to do it all the same way, but you do have to do something. And the age of hard cutoffs needs to die. <laughs> and there are cost-effective ways to get at it. Um, there, there was a great session at the at the prior annual meeting with that word cloud. What's your bigger barrier? People put up cost. Well, there are lots of inexpensive ways to address that issue. People put in time. There are lots of time-effective ways to address the issue. It's, it's really just excuses at this point. Yeah, it's certainly a, uh, a a task worth undertaking, even though it would be would be difficult and require a whole lot of uh, cooperation between labs. It, it it needs to happen for sure. You know, and this is what Ashi was designed for, right? Like this is to me, this is the the why does Ashi exist? This is clearly under that umbrella. Absolutely. Um, and you know, I I would also point out that when we Sometimes we get so micro-focused on our day-to-day -day activities. When we talk about cost, it's like, oh, well, I'm going to have to run this extra thing or I'm going to do this extra thing, right? Uh, but if you take a few steps back and you look at it, as Rob talked about, from the patient level, right, the cost to the overall patient for doing those extra things to get them a real antibody determination seems like it would be in the favor of you know, doing a better patient service there, whether you have to do extraness um, to achieve it, right? And, you know, we're all in the business of improving patient outcomes and access, right? So, yeah, I, I, I love hearing that one. That was one, that's, that was a fantastic way to kick off 2024. We did not get to answer what was really my burning question, which is I, I was dying to ask what percentage of, of your wardrobe, Dr. Lewski, is made up of short sleeved black under armor shirts it's it's got to be higher than 80 percent oh see, it's, it's got to be that's very specific now if you just asked like you know black under armor shirts that would be one that but short sleeved that's very specific i don't know i mean i'm pretty confident if you just said black under armor i would have been like oh it's it's like 99 percent. but yeah well the short well, sleeve that that's well, this is information we need. People are talking about it. Like we, yes, we've got to find this out. To know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll circle back around <laughs> to that at some point in the year. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for listening. Till next time. Bye. <laughs>